This is a Clark University podcast. We often think of mating and courtship as this mutualistic relationship and both parties benefit and there's a lot of love. It's not always like that. Male rhinoceros beetles use their horns to fight for access to females. They're fighting over sap sites on the trunks and branches of trees where females come to feed. They're fighting over rotten logs where females will lay their eggs. The species fight in different ways. In nature, the fiery, impassioned, and sometimes violent sentiments of love songs become quite literal. Species fight off others to mate, and evolution has given animals and insects the tools for combat. But how do these traits develop, and why are species so diverse? Clark biologist Erin McCullough is enamored with these questions. I've always been fascinated by biology. I basically spent my summers in Pacific Northwest, north of Seattle, on Orcas Island, rummaging around in the forest floor. I would go down to the beach at low tide, figure out who was in the tide pools. I grew up in eastern Washington, and we had a bunch of maple trees in our backyard. And every now and then, um, I would find owl pellets, and I would dissect them at the kitchen table. I'm sure my mom loved it that I would have, like, regurgitated mouse bits <laughs> on the kitchen table. But I've always, I've always been fascinated by biology. A lot of the really cool stuff that we see in the animal kingdom is related to mating. So like peacocks, if you think of peacocks and a male flashing his big tail, that's for mating. If you think of elk and males bashing their antlers together, that's because of mating. If you think of birds singing their songs, they're courting females, that's because of mating. So sexual selection or competition over mates is responsible for, I would say, most of the biggest, flashiest, most colorful and conspicuous traits that we find in the animal kingdom. I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change. These traits to attract mates can come at a big cost. They sometimes make species more visible to predators, something that initially seems at odds with natural selection. Sexual selection was first proposed by Charles Darwin, who's the same biologist who proposed the theory of evolution by natural selection. We think of traits that help individuals survive. So like camouflage makes animals less noticeable to predators, so that is adaptive. But then there are these traits like peacock tails or elk antlers that were puzzling because that seems like a burden. Having this giant set of antlers is not gonna make the elk a fast runner or birds that are super flashy, that's just gonna make them more conspicuous to predators. So how do we explain that? Reproduction is actually the currency that really matters. So it doesn't matter if an individual lives a whole lot longer than its peers. If it never succeeds in attracting a mate, then it won't leave any of its genes to the next generation. 
deer produce new antlers every year um, and it takes a lot of calcium and they go through periods of seasonal osteoporosis because they can't get enough calcium from their diet that they have to take some of it out of their skeleton. Their skeletons are more brittle when they're building their antlers. So this is like bad. It's costly, but they need the antlers in order to fight with other males in order to gain access to females. They have made that trade-off that there's a cost, but the reproductive benefit is really high, and so it's worth it. Courtship in the animal kingdom can be a lot worse than swiping on Tinder. At times, it is downright deadly. So there's a lot of conflict in the animal kingdom. And actually, a lot of courtship can be borderline harassment in order for males to mate with a female that might not really be receptive. And then there's whole realms of sexual conflict. And we get these like very crazy evolutionary arms races. An interesting example is in fruit flies. When a male mates, he transfers not only sperm, but also a cocktail of seminal fluid proteins. And some of these proteins induce a female to ovulate and oviposit. So it's really good for a male. He mates with the female and then she starts laying a bunch of eggs. But it turns out that these same chemicals also harm the female. It's like toxic chemicals that reduce her lifespan. So that's not great for the female. So the female has evolved counter strategies to resist some of these toxic proteins. Males are transferring these toxic chemicals. Females are evolving a counter adaptation to not be harmed by them as much. Males then evolve a counter strategy to have more toxic chemicals and we get this coevolutionary arms race. Bedbugs have given up on courtship altogether. Males just like stab the female's body cavity and insert sperm. So it's like traumatic insemination. Because what's good for a male isn't necessarily good for a female, and each individual's trying to do what's best for themselves, but it's not always aligned. Creating the next generation doesn't always mean courtship and mating. Some species reproduce asexually. You can save a whole lot of time and energy. So like you wouldn't have to do all this courtship and singing and dancing and like building big feathers and antlers and stuff. You could just like channel all that energy to producing offspring. There are some interesting scenarios of organisms that will alternate between the two. So for example, aphids will reproduce asexually during the spring and summer. That's why you might get an infestation of aphids in your gardens. It's known as parthenogenesis, which is when a female can produce offspring without having to mate. And aphids can produce daughters that are actually pregnant already. And so you can have these like explosions of, of aphid pop populations. But then when fall and winter come around, then they reproduce sexually because of the benefits of, of shuffling their genetic materials. When it comes to reproduction, females don't always carry the burden of pregnancy and parental care. 
as humans, as mammals, we might be biased to think that females provide more parental care because in mammals, females are pregnant and then they nurse and so they provide a lot of resources to their offspring, but that's not the case across the animal kingdom. So for example, in seahorses, males are pregnant. So females actually transfer their eggs and then they um, develop in this brood pouch that the male has, and then he gives birth to the live young. Pregnancy is not a female phenomenon. In humans, the males have an X and a Y chromosome. Females have two X chromosomes. So sex is determined genetically, chromosomally, but that's also not consistent across the animal kingdom. In butterflies and birds, we have the opposite pattern where females have two different chromosomes and males have two of the same sex chromosome. It's weirder in ants and bees and wasps. In those species, females have two sets of chromosomes and males developed from unfertilized eggs. Full sisters are more genetically related to each other than a female would be to her own offspring. In other species, they can switch between males and females. So in some fishes, an individual can be a male and then transition to a female if the female in the population gets removed. We also have hermaphrodites where individuals have both male and female gonads. So we have like a lot of crazy stuff out in the natural world, not just the animal kingdom. And I think in my classes, students just get excited about hearing about some of this variation that they don't know about. Erin's <laughs> recent research focuses on dung beetles here in New England. There's one species that is, its name is Onthophagus taurus. It is native to the Mediterranean, but it has been introduced to both the U.S. and Australia. We like it because it helps degrade dung. The, the beetles dig tunnels into the ground so it aerates the soil. They bring nutrients down into the soil. So these dung beetles are really important for farmers. So the beetle was introduced to Florida in the 1970s, but its range has expanded. And I know that it's now all the way up in Massachusetts. So we have a species whose range has expanded across essentially all of the Eastern US. And some of the research that I'm focusing on now is how populations differ in the center of the range or where it was first introduced up to the edges here in Massachusetts. So we've talked a lot about mating and how sexual selection is this really important evolutionary force in driving differences in morphology and behavior. It is a really important evolutionary force, but we don't understand how it might play a role in understanding how a species is adapting to new environments across this invaded range. So that's one of the big questions that I'm interested in tackling. Just at the Hadwin Arboretum, just off campus, we set up pitfall traps. So we dug Nalgene bottles into the ground and we baited it with um, dog poop. And we collected another dung beetle, Onthophagus orpheus. It's this really pretty iridescent beetle and it has a fun thoracic horn. And we don't know anything about it. So because it's a tunneling dung beetle, 
Presumably, the males are, again, using their horns to fight for access to these breeding tunnels, but we don't really know how they fight. We don't know if females prefer to mate with the big males with big horns or if females get any benefit from mating with the big males with big horns. So there's a lot of interesting biology about the species that we don't know about, and that's some of what I'm interested in studying with students here at Clark. To learn more about biology at Clark, visit clarku.edu slash biology. Challenge Change is produced by Andrew Hart and Melissa Hansen for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three. Clark! <laughs>